My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. That's what's up. It's good to be back. Welcome to the Prison Post. I'm Richard Morales. This is Jason Bryant. Hello, everyone. Good to have you, Jay. Good to be back, here. back from Colorado. Yeah. Uh, today we want to welcome our brother and our friend Richie Reseda. What up? What up? <laughs> hey. hey. He's the. He's. A, I'll say a few things about him. He's the co-founder of Initiate Justice, the co-founder of Success Stories, the co-founder of uh, Question Culture. Man, what else are you the co-founder of? <laughs> hey, I where, uh? I think that's it. Okay. Well, uh, you're young, so probably about ten more in about ten years. But uh, we're excited to have you on the show today. Uh, Richard is a forward thinker. He's a visionary, an advocate, an activist, an organizer, philosopher, rapper, singer, musician, entrepreneur, and what else did I miss, Jay? On and on and on and on. You didn't miss much, but there's... What about what about sports? We were talking sports earlier. Oh, I know. man. So guy. hold on. So look, I just want to say this. What are you shaking your head for? Hold on. We had... So we had, uh, as former guests, we had James Willock and... And uh, you know uh, Christopher Good and Slick. You remember Slick? And we were talking about some of their their <clears throat> their claim to sports prowess. What about you, Rich? Because you can't tell by looking. You're sitting down right now. What is he you, about six four? You're pretty. No, he's like six nine. Well, I'm six four. <laughs> <laughs> I can't play a single sport. My man. My man. I, I make up for sports with a. Uh, Co-founding organizations, apparently. That part. That part. That's, that's beautiful. Uh, hold up, hold up, though. Right, right before we got on the air, this guy was eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It's been 20 months no for jelly. me. I haven't even had one yet. What's up with that? He said, he no, said, he said no jelly. All peanut butter. Oh, okay, all peanut butter. All peanut butter. <laughs> just with the one piece of bread, the spoon of peanut butter, and just, like, I'm walking down the tier. It's an unfortunate habit, but I just haven't gotten my, the, the way that people eat, not in prison, I haven't figured right. that part out. right. Well, you uh, you you got some milk to wash it down. <laughs> I'm actually tolerant. I did not drink a sip of milk the entire seven years I was in prison. Oh, really? Uh, couldn't do it. I would just okay. drink water out the sink. And best believe, I got me some water out the sink. Oh, okay. okay. Well, nowadays they have that milk that's not really milk, the coconut almond stuff. Oh yeah, the almond milk. Oh, that's, that's, I I drink that all day. That yeah, almond that's milk. That's pretty good. It's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Go ahead. I just wanted to say, you know, it's it's just so good to have this space with you and, and be able to hold this conversation with you. I remember I was thinking back to some of the work we did inside together, uh, our early work with Hartnell Community College, you know, doing leadership uh, for life and, and talking to some of the college students about, you know, different perspectives that, that, that we found useful in our lives. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was some of the music that you and 88 would grace us with. What was one of your favorite songs? One of your favorite songs that you two performed for, you know, us while we were in that space? My, I think one of my favorite, we obviously did a bunch of original music, 88 song, Overwhelmed, The Most Hunted. Um, but my favorite music moment from when we were in Soledad together was when me and 88 covered um, Someone Like You by Adele. Okay. I don't know if y'all were at that talent show. Um, it was like a Christmas show and he slayed it. And it was when he first got to the yard, no one really knew who he was. Right. And, um, people were like, what are you doing this year? Cause the year before that I had like rapped and done my own thing. 
And I was like, man, I'm about to, I'm about to company on piano. This, this dude who just hit the yard in 88 can sing. And they're like, what? Remember Ted was like, that's one of my favorite songs. Y'all better do a yeah. good job. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Day, Ted came up and was like, y'all did it justice. Yeah. That boy. Dang. Yeah, that's right. I thought, see, I thought you were going to say, you remember that song, Some Kind of Way? Some kind of way. <laughs> some kind of way. Some kind of way. I don't know the words, but I remember. Some kind of God way. Feels some kind of way. <laughs> My man. Come on, man. We don't want to embarrass you too much, but give us a bar or two or something. <laughs> All right. All right, Rich. <laughs> it's good to see you, man. It's great it's to see you. I see love y'all so much. I yeah. just love y'all so much. I'm so happy to be out with y'all. You look yeah. great. It's good to see you smiling. And, um, you know, we, we, I don't know how many years we were together there. Uh, I think you did seven, but at least it seems like three or four, five years or something mm-hmm. together. I remember walking the track with you. I mean, in, in, in our book, you were generous enough to share uh, chapter seven, your story. And uh, it's an amazing story. It's a great story. Um, I remember also when, um, you know, you and Charles, uh, how old were you at the time? And you and Charles were start, starting success stories. And I remember you you asked me to come in on a Saturday in uh, the cold cafeteria for 18 to 35-year-olds, this new group that was trying to get marginal. They were trying to marginalize you. And um, yep. and um, we were doing um, life management and time management and the smart goal-setting system. And there was about 15, 20 of us in the cold gym on a Saturday morning. You remember that? I I remember it very clearly. Yeah, I was 21 years old. I was 21 when uh when I met y'all and and y'all first started kind of supporting me and Charles and how to build that program. And so, I was 29. So I just turned 29 last week. Oh, happy birthday! Happy belated birthday, bro! Thank you. Will you share yeah. with us a little bit about success stories? And you know, we're we're familiar, but for our listening and viewing audience, a little bit about its origin and and, and what success stories is doing today. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about it. As far as I know, y'all got some success stories, folks, coming on the show doing a whole episode on success stories, sure. which I'm really excited about. So I'm, I'll, I'll just give a little bit, and yeah. then and I'll let those guys really do their thing. But for sure, um, success stories. We started back in 2014 um, when I first got to Soledad. It was the first prison I went to that had groups and like self help culture, and uh, the the groups that I was being pulled into wasn't addressing patriarchy, which. Uh, was so central to the harmful decisions that I was making and, and many of the harmful decisions that of people I knew, like the idea of what made me a real man was to be violent um, or to be emotionless or to have money or quote unquote have women. Like that idea was at the core of so much of my harmful behavior. And, and I, it just wasn't addressed at least in the first few programs that I went through. So um, we, we started a group to address it. Yeah, I think your 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 program still one of the only ones addressing it. Um, we we stepped in there um, uh, as well after we read Joe Ehrman's book, um, Season of Life, and some of his saw some of his uh, uh, videos and his books um, on. Um, you know, I know there's a there's a great YouTube video out here called "Be a Man" by Joe Ehrman, and he just pu- pushes back against all of that. <clears throat> and uh, appreciate the work you guys are doing. Yeah, we're going to be having uh, Manny Thomas on. And uh, Hugo Gonzalez, the, the master storyteller, they're both great communicators, great speakers. And uh, what, what, what about what's your role today with uh, success stories and are you transitioning out? I want to talk about question culture um, and, and, the, and, the, and the future for Richie Brasita, but uh, what, what's going on there today? Yeah, um, success stories since, since getting out, we've grown from one prison to 11 um, and a county jail and more reentry facilities and uh, youth programs and I could count. Um, 
And right now I'm the, the co-executive director. Um, I oversee like the programming. Um, and we have another co-executive director named Chantal who volunteered with us the entire time from the beginning, mm. completely free being our voice on the other side of the phone for, uh, seven years or however long it was. Um, and she manages like the operations and the more like nonprofit compliance payroll. Right. So, um, yeah, that's been my role. I'm also the, the board chair of Success Stories, and we're getting ready to move Manny, um, who facilitated with us inside and now uh, is running our growth operation here on the outside, getting us into new spots. He's moving into my space as co-executive director, and I'll remain uh, the chair of the board. Okay. That's beautiful. Manny's just been out a little over a year now? Yep. Yeah. Got out October 6th, I think, 2019. That's awesome. New dad. Oh, yeah. New dad. Yep. He definitely, uh, he definitely experienced the freedom twenty. Uh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There, well, there's, there's <laughs> the combination. The best of us. There's a the combination. You got the freedom twenty, and then you got the COVID nineteen. So you got about thirty nine pounds that you're gaining when you're coming out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> How did you avoid that, Rich? <laughs> I mean, I peanut think butter. That, that's what um, it was. I think that we connect weight to health in a way that I, I think has a lot more to do with patriarchy than it has to do with people's health. Mm. Um. And for me, so I don't, I, I try not to pay att- that much attention to my weight. I wish I could tell you that I don't like look at like little areas of my body and be like, I want this to be this. Or I want this to be this. I do absolutely do those things. But I think, um, I was, I, for me, like working out was the first part. That was the first discipline thing I ever did. Mm-hmm. Like when I got to prison, I was a drug addict. I was, um, a gangbanger. I didn't, I didn't, I was used to waking up and just whatever, like you wake up and the day is going to tell you what the day is doing. I didn't have like a, I do this every day type of sure. thing. Um, and the first thing that I learned to do that gave my day structure when, when I got locked up when I was 19 was I'm going to work out every day. And that felt important to me. And then it was, I'm going to learn five Spanish words a day. Right. And then it was, I'm going to read part of my book. Then it became school. Then it became groups. Then it became right. And coming up behind y'all taking six, seven classes at a time in college. And then I started doing that madness with y'all. And, um, yeah, but, but that, that piece of discipline of like, I'm going to exercise every day, like became like almost a spiritual practice for me. Like it just sure. became mandatory. And that, did you maintain um, it since you've been out? Have you maintained it? I have all the way up until COVID-19. Okay. That has been, that made it so hard when the gyms shut down. I was like, I don't need a gym. I'll go to the park and do pull-ups. Right. Park shut down and working out in my, house felt like working out in the cell like it didn't feel good to me like it, right. it reminded me too much of lockdowns and so my workouts got real shifty and it's been it's been challenging i haven't gotten back to my five my five times a week since the beginning of the pandemic right rich right now you were talking about taking five or six classes and and the way you build multiple disciplines one upon another since the age of 19 would you take us back and share uh, a little bit without going into the you know uh, great amount of details but how you ended up incarcerated and then that that poignant moment where you decided to say uh this is the point where i'm going to transform my life this is the point where i you said i went to prison as a drug addict as a gang member what happened with that shift and then, uh, of course, uh, me and you talked about talking about the story when you had to talk with the fellas, because a lot of I want to I want to when you went to the table and talked to the fellas uh, that, that you talked about in this in this book, that story. And the reason why it's important is because 
um, our, our podcast is for those family members and loved ones of the incarcerated. And so many times we, we get comments on, on YouTube or, or, or through emails of my loved one is saying, you know, that it's not possible in there to transform their life, that you have to go along because that's the way it is. And you have to go along with, with the way it is. And so I just want to hear, hear, hear a little bit about that and let the audience know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. Are y'all still on? Yeah, we're here. Yeah, we're here. Okay. The view just changed. Um, can we put it back? It's weird to just look at myself. Thank you. <laughs> it's all good. It's all right. Um, yeah. So I, I, I mean, I'll go, I'll be brief. I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, I grew up in a culture that, and I don't mean specifically, like I, I grew up in what I think is the culture of America, which teaches young masculine kids that we need to be emotionless and violent and have money. And I think specifically for, for young black kids it looked a very particular way that stereotypes we see in the media not just about what makes you a real man but what makes you a real black man and i bought into those things um i sure. also grew up during the time of zero tolerance where the county of la decided if you have heavily criminalized children that's how you stop them from um growing up to be quote-unquote criminals in the future so but those were just a bad mix you know i first was arrested when i was 11 for playing too rough at school and again 13 for leaving school early and on and on and on. I also, simultaneously, I started doing drugs when I was 12, gangbanging when I was 12, and selling drugs when I was 13, and that was really the trajectory my life was on. Um, and even though I got brought into a great program started by my mentors, Patrice Colors, Mark Anthony Johnson, training us as community organizers when I was 14, I still felt like I had to be that real one for my homies in the streets. Um, so when I got, when I, my principal told me to drop out of high school when I was 16, I did. And uh, my dad kicked me out of the house and I lived in the streets full time. And two and a half years later at 19, I decided to rob three Rite Aids. Um, and I was charged with seven robberies, two kidnappings, assault with a deadly weapon. I was facing 150 years to life. Um, I fought my case for a year and eventually got, got 10 years and two strikes and, and got incarcerated. Um, I entered prison, like I said, as someone who was addicted to drugs from the time I was 12 years old, I entered prison as um, someone who was gangbanging. And I knew that that wasn't authentically who I wanted to be. Like I knew that I was like playing a role based on what I felt like society expected of me. And like in my heart, I'm actually much more like the type of person who wears pink shirts, you know, like, and, but I, I didn't feel like I could be that person. Um, and I really, I remember thinking to myself when I, when I went to prison, by the time I got to state prison from LA County jail, I was 20 years old. I had 10 years and two strikes and I didn't know what it was going to be like to be in prison, but I imagined it would be violent. At my sentencing, the DA went and stood by my family and said, we just want you to know if you ever commit another crime, you know, this is pre prop 36, you'll be spending the rest of your life in prison. So I'm like, how am I about to go to prison and not be involved in any violence or anything illegal mm -hmm. in my life? So I was like, I can't, me being a gang member is making that worse. Like it, sure. it, it's just, so I didn't want to do that, but obviously I was too afraid not to. Um, and after being in prison for about three years, I remember two of my homies, uh, I, I say homies, y'all know what I mean. Like two, two people who are from the same Maybe card, I'm like sure. group, of, group of gangs uh, that I was from, were about to jump this teacher um, in the education building. 
And anyway, the cops came and, and broke it up and da-da-da-da-da, and, and it didn't happen. And I remember talking to one of them. He was also 21 at the time and had two strikes. Um, and he was like, yeah, we were going to jump this teacher, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, bro, what are you doing? You got two strikes. Like, you jump a teacher, it's a wrap. Mm-hmm. And he was like, so? He was like, so what? Like, I'll, I'll die for this shit. Da-da-da. If they came in right now and said, who would die for your gang, I would get on my knees and shoot me for him. That's, and he got on his knees, put on this whole performance and hallway education. And I remember thinking and telling him, like, not me. <laughs> like, like that's not going to be my story. Like, I- I'm not going to die for something pointless. Um, and he went and told my homies, like, yo, Richie said that if, if we jump this teacher, he's not going to help us. And then a couple of my homies started acting weird towards me, like, and I remember thinking, this is so ridiculous. Like, y'all are supposed to be my friends, but you're mad at me. I wouldn't throw away my life for no reason. That part. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. I would rather I would rather get the third strike for fighting y'all because you jumped me because I'm not doing this anymore than get a third strike for jumping some teacher for, for, for no good reason. So um, that's what I told them. I told them, yo, I'm not doing this anymore. It was one of the things I've ever my life because of my not just because of the fear of violence but mostly my own identity like i was so wrapped up like if, if, if i'm not a gangster crip then who am i what am i like that was how i saw myself for at that point over 10 years 12 years of my life um like half my life i had spent being a crip i didn't know who else to be um how did I didn't they know where to sit how, how did they re- how, how did they receive you taking that stand for your life rich um, you know, they were just shocked. I remember I walked over to, to our area, as y'all know, like everybody got their own little areas on the yard. And I told them, I said, I'm done y'all. And they were like, what, what do you mean? I was like, game banging. I'm just done. And one of them, I remember, uh, his name is Poppy. Unfortunately he got killed when he got out. He's, he's no longer alive. Um, Poppy looked up to me and he was like, damn, cause I ain't never, I ain't never seen nobody do that before. <laughs> he was like, oh. I've heard of people doing it, and and but I've never actually seen it with my own eyes. And I was like, "Yep, well, it's a wrap." And uh, they were all just kind of quiet and didn't say anything. And it was yard recall, and I went in the building. And then that night, I came back out for night yard, and you know, I expected they were going to come jump me or whatever. And here comes like all my homies, the young ones anyway, probably six, seven deep, and they like waved me over to to spin a lap, and kind of the de facto leader because you you know it ain't it's not organized like that. Um, he, we're walking together and I got my jaw tight because I just know he's going to try to just knock me out and then they're going to jump me. And he put out his hand and he was like, bro, I respect you as a man. And I shook his hand and we wrapped a couple verses back and forth. And that was that. I mean, there's little things that happened after that, little comments people would make. I remember getting in line for the crypt phones and somebody being like, we let non-affiliates use the phones now, cuz? Like, kind of to nobody like it was just me and him there and he was kind of trying to preempt me like like provoke me to like get violent with him but once I was out once I'm out I'm out y'all like this is a game that we're playing and this is not for me to be judgmental towards gang members like I ended like I said our society trains us to be like this like our 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 society trains us that this is what makes us valuable as men right being violent and having money and gangs are just the way that poor and working class men of color are able to achieve that we don't have a dad to give us a million dollar loan like Donald Trump. Right. So, um, 
I, it's no judgment towards them, but I'm, I'm going to name the facts that that shit is not beneficial to our lives and wasn't beneficial to my life. And I was willing to accept the consequences for, for choosing me and choosing my family. Don't you think it's true that uh, <clears throat> probably the majority of them, they wanted to do the same thing that you did. They wanted to come and say the same thing. It's in, it's in them. You know, when you lay in your bunk at night and uh, you think about your life, <laughs> the majority of guys who are still gangbanging are, are like, man, when is this going to be over? They know deep down that it's a lie. And, um, you know, when, when Rich, uh, speak to the point when, you know, for, for all of us and the, and the, and the people that we um, uh, know who have transformed their lives, there comes that moment. You mentioned the word fear. Whether it's real or perceived, there's that moment when you come up against the how it is and you take your stand and you say what you say and come what may, you know, like if they're going to jump me, I'm ready, but I'm not going to yeah. bow down. I'm not going to go backwards. Um, what is that like? And is that, is that still possible? Yeah. I mean, advice that sticks with me, a good friend of, of ours, I'm sure y'all have him on the show eventually, Chris Locknick. Um, he, he said, what do you want to go to the dirt for? You keep gangbanging, you're going to go to the dirt eventually. If you choose not to gangbang, you're probably going to go to the dirt for that. What do you want to go to the dirt for? What can you look in the mirror? What can you look to to God and be like, I threw it all away for? And um, that is what got me past the fear because the fear was real. Like As gang members, I feel like so much of our self-worth is tied up in what our homies think of us. Mm Mm-hmm. Like it's such a core part of it is like, I was just thinking about this the other day, like homies are your resources. Your homies are your housing. Your homies are your everything. Like, so the idea that they would look at you some type of way is just unacceptable. I had so much fear. It wasn't the the jumping part was like, yeah, that'll suck, but I'll be fine. But the idea that I had homies on the streets, homies that I gangbang with that are in other prisons that would be looking at me as like less than that is what scared me. Right. Um, that fear but of I being, just had to ask that question. That fear of disapproval, right? Of not, not being approved. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's crazy. And and what's interesting to me, what I find to be interesting, is that like that that need to or that desire, not a need, but a desire to like be approved. Do you, do you find that it has changed in some ways? Do you do you still seek approval in some ways, but just from a different category of people or or people who have different commitments? A little bit. I think at first that was much more true for me, but the more and more I've grown, the more I've, I've had to learn. And I'm talking about recent growth, y'all, like yeah. this morning. <laughs> the more I've had to learn, like, like this person isn't God. Sure. I don't know how spiritual I can get on the show, but this person, like, I, I would get people and God mixed up. Like if this person is saying I'm wrong, then I must be wrong objectively. Mm. No, like this person isn't God. Like they, they, they can have their opinion. It's based on their lived experience and where they're at. And that was so even on even in the social justice movement, like the opinions of these, they're not God. Like I have to look at what is it, what I understand to be objectively true um, and, and lies in with my values. And but I appreciate you asking that question, Jay, because that experience is unique to gang members. Sure. I, I feel the same way when I would see how the cops would act. Sure. Like cops would see something that they know is wrong. Like even when we see these videos of extreme cop violence, you can look around in some of the surrounding cops eyes and you, I know that face of like, yep. this ain't right. This ain't but right. I'm not going to say nothing about it. And I'm, I'm scrambling to try to justify my actions to myself right now because I'm so afraid of, 
going against the group. And that is that that leads to a lot, a lot of the harm that we see from law enforcement and in the community as well. So you're kind of leading right into like the next kind of topic that we want to talk about is some of these like hot button uh, issues that are going on in, in the community today. Yeah, for sure. You know, we're talking about like defunding the police. We're talking about prison abolitionism. Abolitionism. What would you be willing to share with us, like the distinction between prison prison abolitionism and the value of rehabilitation, and like what's your what's your position on this? Yeah, I appreciate that question. I think the idea of rehabilitation is bullshit. <laughs> I think it's completely. I think it's an extremely racist idea. I think it's a racist and classist idea because it, it, it applies that only certain people, like when we say rehabilitation, we mean very specifically people in prison right. need to change their lives and become good people again. Mm. But people in prison aren't the only people who do things that are harmful. There's a difference to like, not all crime is harmful and not all harm is criminalized. So by that, I mean this. We know for a fact Donald Trump, president of the United States, killed somebody about nine months ago, blew up a caravan in Iran. We know that for a fact. He said it with his mouth. The whole world knows. No one's asking that man to be rehabilitated. Right. No one's asking that man to put out some uh, relapse prevention plan and how are you going to make sure this never happens and go to 20 years of groups and show me that you're this guru that can talk about spirituality and your inner thoughts. Nobody is asking that of him mostly because of his wealth privilege, his, his racial privilege, his, the official power that's been given to him by the state. Sure. But what he's done is very similar to what most of our friends have done. He has taken a life, at least one, right? And, and he's a bad example because he's taken hundreds of thousands of lives. But the, so that's why the whole idea of like, we want to get away from punishment and towards rehabilitation is still rooted in the same racist classist trope that there are broken people and fixed people. And it just so happens to be all the broken people look like us. I don't believe that, but I do believe in transformation and I do believe in healing that the difference is I think everybody needs that. And we all have caused harm. It might be very, everybody ain't robbed a bunch of stores like me. And I'm not trying to conflate somebody who cheats on their wife to somebody who robbed some stores and put a gun in someone's face. Not the same, but the, the fact is we both committed harm and we both need to transform harmful behavior. Um, and heal. And that's the conversation I'd rather have than this idea of rehabilitation, which only applies to people who look a certain way and come from certain backgrounds. What's your perspective on justice? What does justice mean to you? Yeah, I think justice is... You're asking me specifically what does justice mean to me, so I'll answer that. And then I I, I remember your prison abolition question too, and I'd like to speak to that. All right. Justice is healing. That is the most just we can get out of a bad situation. The, the best we can hope for is healing and restoration and transformation and accountability, right? So what do I mean when I say those things? Healing meaning if I harmed you, the best, it, it's already happened. We can't undo that. Mm-hmm. So the best thing we can do is try to heal you to the point where you feel the least, the least impact of that harm. Maybe Maybe that means I pay you back what I took. Maybe that means I, whatever, like however we get you to be the best you can be um, after the harm. That's, that's justice. Accountability, me understanding so deeply what I did, the harm I committed. I understand it so deeply that I am committed to never committed doing that again. And I'm committed to making sure it doesn't happen again, period. Right. I, I think that you all are great examples of this. You didn't just get out of prison and say, well, never going to try to kill anybody again. Right. You, you, mm-hmm 
got out and not only changed your behavior, but also are creating things like this show and all the great work that crop is doing so that nobody does those things. That's how tapped in you are with the harm that you created. That's accountability, right? Um, transformation of behavior is a part of justice. If I understand what I did, I really am accountable for that. Then I'm going to do the work that I need to, to make sure I don't do that anymore. Those things are justice. What we have right now is this idea that revenge is justice. That if I hurt you, you have to hurt me back. Right. Now we have two hurt people. What is just about that? Right. You hurt me. So I, therefore I must punish you or I'm entitled to punish you and, and give you pain, the pain that you caused me. Sure. So tell us a little bit about this abolition and prison abolition and what you mean. Because I want to, I want to say, I want to preface it by saying this, Rich. I've been in so many circles where, you know, just, just with family members, people in the community and the, the, they believe that, um, there's, there's, there's a pushback against it initially because it abolished, you know, just close the door, close all the doors today. And, and, and I rarely hear people, you know, with the, uh, you know, prison abolitionists, they're defining what they mean and spending the time. So I think on the one hand, there's a responsibility to spend some time sharing. Here's what I mean. Here, here, here's a plan that I would. So it's just not some utopian idea, you know? Um, and then on the other hand, it's also their responsibility to start asking questions instead of staying in their unquestioned assumptions and making judgments about what the other side believes and, you know, uh, banging on them for that. So, yeah, I just wanted to add that. Yeah, I agree. Um, prison abolition, um, I think at its heart is really about revenge abolition. Prison abolition is about building the type of justice that we were just talking about, where justice is based in healing and accountability and transformation instead of justice being based in revenge and profit as it currently is. So prison abolition doesn't mean that we don't have um, systems that respond to harm. It means that we have systems that respond to harm by trying to bring healing and transformation and accountability, as opposed to systems that respond to harm by causing more harm. Um, The difference, uh, you know, right now, the way our justice system works is I will use myself as an example. I rob stores. We then, here's what didn't happen. We didn't see any therapy or healing attempts made to the people who are in those stores, the people who we robbed to rob a store. Because you can't rob a store. You rob a person, right? It's a person at the register. There's no attempt made on behalf of our system to heal that person, who I'm sure were greatly traumatized by my harmful actions. There was no attempt to even pay the store back. We we have to pay that restitution, right? It took me eight years, nine years to pay those people back, right? There was no attempt to find out why my little 19-year-old behind was running out there with guns robbing people in the first place and how to stop that from happening. The idea wasn't that, that this person's behavior can change. There was definitely no attempt made to reconcile me and the people who I harmed. In fact, when I wrote to them and apologized, I got a letter from DA Jackie Lacey saying, if I ever do that again, she's going to charge me the crime. Right. So, but there was a boat, but there was a boatload of money spent to incarcerate you. Correct. Instead, what happened was LAPD beat me into a concussion. So I was throwing up on myself, trying to take me away from the community for 150 years. Um, and then spent $80,000 a year, uh, locking me up and treating me as less than human. That is what we are seeking to abolish that, that nonsensical idea. All of those people who I harmed, if they've had any healing, it's not because our system offered it to them. Sure. It's because they went and they had to get it from themselves. And instead our system sought to just destroy me. That's the idea that we're seeking to abolish. It doesn't mean that people will never be separated from those they harm. Um, but there's all kinds of ways to achieve that when it's necessary, 
when it's necessary. There's all kinds of ways to achieve that, but not with arbitrary numbers. Some legislature made up that these crimes carry this amount of time. And then some DA put together a puzzle of what crimes they're going to charge me with. And then some judge slams a gavel, all these made up numbers. It's all completely arbitrary, baseless, and it's not rooted in any solution. That's what we're seeking to abolish. Rich, go ahead. So, um, just a few days ago, uh, Ted and I had the good fortune of, uh, attending a fundraising event for, you know, the, uh, Mr. Garcon running for a DA of LA. And he, he said a lot of the things that you're saying right now, which I think are, are powerful. They're true. And he basically said, you know, when, when it comes to people who are, who are arguing about like, don't defund the police. Like, where were you when we were defunding the schools? Where were you when we were defunding, you know, the hospitals? Because all that happened and you had nothing to say. And, you know, when it comes to like the, the people who actually do cause harm, you know, we, we have, we know how to deal with them, unfortunately. You know, he, and he was saying it as a reality. Like, yep. we have systems that are built on punishment. So if someone is really committed to, to causing harm, we can, we can put them somewhere else. But as you were saying, the, there's so much money that's being spent to incarcerate people that can be used in a more effective way into communities, investing into communities, and, and making sure that, that these crimes don't happen in the first place because there's preventative measures being taken. There's you're, investments in the community. And you're talking about George Gascon, right? Yes, okay. yes. You know, ideally, hopefully, the future uh, DA of Los Angeles. You know, but I, I imagine he will be. Yeah. yeah. Um, hey, Rich. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I was just gonna say I appreciate those points. Uh, I appreciate those points. That I think people forget that there is a whole movement to fund the police. That's not that old. It was in the 1990s. So if you were alive before 1994, you're pretty familiar with what the world looked like right. um, prior to when we spent 1% of GDP on cops. Every, a, a, a penny out of every dollar spent in this country goes to the police. Sure. Like, that was not always the case, and it's not serving us for that to be the case. Let's, yeah. uh, <clears throat> I want to I I, I, I say something about that, too. You know, it was a time in the 80s where, where, where what one would get uh, 25 to lie for, 40 to lie for, uh, would get five to lie for. And who voted for those laws? The people. And, and the people, uh, in turn, were convinced and persuaded to change those um, sentences to, you know, mandatory minimums of 25 to life. And if, it, and if it was changed there by the people, they could also change again. The other day I was, on a, I was on a, in a work group with the BSCC and those in charge of um, rewriting and, and changing the Title 15 for uh, all the county jails in California. And I was the only formerly car- incarcerated person there. And we're going over point, point by point, line by line, the Title 15 in there. And the, and the point I want to share with you, Rich, is, uh, is connected to this, is that we're going over the, the 15 different ways to give discipline to a person who's, uh, you know, acting out in there, uh, uh, you know, getting in trouble, getting, getting 115s, getting in trouble, right? And there's 15 different ways, and all of them is like, take away this, you know, take away phones, take away um, day room, um, and all the way down to we had a vote on whether to remove the dietary discipline program of, of some type of loaf that they have in county jails. If you're if you're really continuing to mess up, um, they give you this dietary loaf to eat. And uh, we voted to have that removed. But my point is, is that there were 14 things on there after that, that on what to do to change that behavior. And what I shared with them is I said, you could, you could lock me in the cell. You could take away my phone calls. You could take away uh, my visits. You can, you can take away my day room. That's not going to change me. None of that is going to transform me. You, you may get some outward change. You may get some outward change. 
but you're definitely not going to get an inward change that express that is going to be expressed outwardly for a period of time. I said, why not assign them to a group to address the things that they're going through? If it's anger, you know, it comes from somewhere. If it's violence, it comes from somewhere. Let's let's instead of everything being takeaway, why not add? Why not add a program and create create something like that? And there was silence afterwards, and then, you know, try to call for a vote, and then what they did, they tabled it for a future discussion. It was if, and there were, there were nothing but um, um, uh, people, law, enforcement. Uh, law enforcement that was on there that are running the um, county jails all over. And to them, that was just like, well, it was um, an idea that, yeah, it was completely foreign, like, like oh, how would that work? Or, or we don't have funding for that. Or like, let's just swipe left, you know, that wouldn't. Sure. Let's let's not do that. And and man, uh, I think that's part of the reasons why we got to do this, continue to do this work, and 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 these shows is to bring awareness to to change the way people think about the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. And eventually, most uh, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a high percentage we're going to get out. And you want to keep punishing and punishing and punishing. That don't work. It doesn't work. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've long had the idea, look, if we added life skills, you know, you got to take four years of math in high school. You know, a lot of times you do all those four years of math and you ain't using that math or you do two years of history and you're not using that history. Why not start in kindergarten with some type of, uh, you know, interpersonal communication, uh, uh, some type of life skills group as mandatory all to all the way throughout school. It's not legislating morality. It's uh, just t- some type of skills. And I bet you we'd begin if it started in kindergarten through 12th grade, that the, that the nation would begin to shift because there are a lot of things going and people say, well, the parents ought to be addressing it. Well, sometimes the parents don't have the, the skills. Anyway, I wanted to add that in. Go ahead, Jay. Yeah. So I, I kind of wanted to um, take a little turn um, and talk some policy with you, if you don't mind. So there's this proposition that there's within the like restorative justice movement, there's kind of a division, a sharp division. Uh, Proposition 25. Would you be willing to share a little bit about Prop 25 and your thoughts about it? Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm doing Prop 25 talks all day today. Yeah, um, I saw you on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have another one after this, but it, it's important. I'm glad to do it because. Um, so Prop 25, for folks who are listening, will essentially um, replace the cash bail system with a um, what they call a risk assessment system okay. to determine who gets bail and who doesn't. Most of the arguments that you're – I'm going to tell you the arguments that you're usually going to hear. There's like two camps who are no on 25. You have the bail industry because they just want to make money selling bail bonds. So we're not aligned with them. Sure. Then you have people on the movement side, um, the – that are saying, um, well, one, it's important to point out why, before I say what folks in the movement are saying, it's important now, probably five, it came about of SB 10, which originally came from the movement. Right. The movement organization who brought SB 10 and was moving it through the legislature a couple years ago. Right. There was, a, there, was, there was a collaboration, right, of different restorative justice organizations that said, this is what we need to do. I would say, I don't know if I would say restorative justice necessarily, but just like, yeah, like criminal justice, criminal justice reform okay. and, and, and prison abolitionist organizations okay. um, that brought SB 10 through. Mm-hmm. And there is a moment when the author was being pushed by probation and to drastically change what, what to, to add some things into SB 10 okay. um, that made it very detrimental and, 
he decided to make those changes and that's when the movement stepped away from it. And, and, and it's led to, so that, that's what I wanted to get to that those main points. The number one point y'all that makes a prop 25, a no go for me ever is that prop 25 has written into the language that if you are being charged with a serious or violent, you have absolutely no opportunity for bail. So what does that mean? That means right now an officer of the law could walk into my house and say, hey, you, you just killed somebody. And I'd be like, no, I didn't. I was on uh, Rich and Jay. What are you talking about? Yeah, you killed somebody. Guess what? I'm now in county jail fighting a murder case for as long as they want me to be, which lessens my ability to win my case because I'm fighting it in blues. It, I, who's going to pay rent on my apartment? Thank goodness I don't have any kids. Like, my whole life can be taken from me at, by a law enforcement officer with no probable cause, no nothing at any given time. And there is no, I have no recourse. Now, right now we have the bail system as recourse, which is not a good one, but it's a recourse. You can raise money. You can't right. turn a, a, a factual no into a yes when it's written into the law. Right. And that is why Prop 25, and and we all walked away from it. So let me, and, and let me ask this. Me. Let me ask this. Is is it true that if we say keep the, the bail system in place, that it will be tough to revisit it. Because, you know, for a lot of people who, struggle, one of their arguments, who, right? who struggle financially, is sometimes bail is not feasible. It's not a feasible option. What, what, what do you say? How do we address that? Look, bail is trash. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not here saying vote no on Prop 25 because cash bail is good. Cash bail is terrible. Sure. I'm saying cash bail is better than nothing. Than nothing. Right. And you have no any – what's also written into Prop 25 is that if you've been convicted of a serious or violent felony, nothing had it. So you, you and me, right. we're toast. Right. We could be walking down the street, picked up. We're in jail, buddy, period. There's nothing that can happen, right? So – Not even at the judge's discretion. No, they are they specifically written in. There is no discretion. Wow, Rich, so, what do what? Go ahead. The the point that so I just want to address that part first. Um, this idea that if it's if it's implemented um, or if we don't change it, there's nothing we can do, or it'll be very difficult to change. Of course, it'll be very difficult to change. Everything in the law is very difficult to change. Sure. But there's nothing written into Prop 25. There's nothing written into a no vote that makes it any harder than it than it is today. There's right. nothing. To the contrary, some people, including the governor of California, have been saying, go ahead and vote it in. I know there's issues. I'll, we'll change it after the fact. Right. Yeah, no, because actually when when things are put into California law by ballot measures, legislators are not usually quick to go against the people of California. Right. Those are the people who elected them. Sure, That's those are the, the people who elected them in the first place. Right. Yeah. That's why we saw crap like three strikes, because right. the legislature isn't going to go and – you tell me 20 million Californians voted yes on Prop 25 and now the legislature is going to go and change it? Absolutely not. We will be right. stuck. We will be stuck for years with this policy. Hey, Rich, what about those who say, you know, last week we had on the show uh, uh, Michael Mendoza, national policy uh, for uh, um, uh, director for uh, ARC. And, and he was and he was. Uh, oh, is he back at ARC? Yeah, you mean he's back with ARC. No, he's back with ARC. ARC. Okay. okay. So, um, so, so he shared his perspectives and ARC's perspectives. And, and I know that, that one of them that I heard is, Hey, you know, look at, look, let's look at, um, like SB 260, right? It started off, um, uh, youthful offender laws. It started off with SB 260 and then we fought for, uh, incremental change, 261. SB 261. And then, and then now it's a thir- AB 1308. And now those 25 and under, started off with those 18 and under, then 21 and under, now 25 and under. 
And, and one of their arguments is, hey, let's get this, and then incrementally we, we can change it. And so I, th- I think you answered that right now by saying, you know, <laughs> I don't, you don't see the pushback. But um, there's this idea also that um, it'll be 10 years before they can make any changes to it. Is there, is there any truth to that? There's nothing in the statute. I've read this entire ballot initiative. There's nothing in the statute, statutory changes that say anything like that. The only yeah. thing, it's, it actually says the exact the, the exact opposite. And I have a great deal of respect for Michael Mendoza, astounding organizer. Um, but I just, I just disagree. There's nothing in statutory change that says that. Um, and the difference is there's two different, there's two key differences here. One, we're talking about bills with those youth offender bills you were talking sure. about versus ballot initiatives, which do not work the same way. Right. It's voters that it's voters that put in ballot initiatives and it's uh, legislators that put put in bills. Sure. And they're four years apart. Right. And they cost tens of millions of dollars to make happen. Right. So this idea, like 260, 261, 1308, they were able to happen pretty relatively after another because you can do that for free. Sure. Right? So that's one big difference is ballot initiatives don't work the same way that that um, bills do. Secondly, there is nothing written into 260. Actually, I was going to say there's nothing inherently harmful written into 260. But there actually was. And you know what? It's never been solved. Because 260, 261, 1308, they all say, if you have life without, none hand in your toast. Right. They all exclude people with life without. Right. And none of the ones that came after solved that problem. They just continued to write that and more and more into the statute. And now you have people with life without who have same limited capability. They were also 14. They were also 22, whatever. But because of their sentence, they're stuck. They're stuck. And there's, and, and no, nobody came back and fixed that with a bill. Um, actually, they can't come back and fix that with a bill. Hmm, why? Because it was put in place with a ballot initiative. Mm. And bills can't change ballot initiatives without a two-thirds majority, which is next to impossible to get, especially on something like criminal justice reform. You can get two-thirds when you want to make a, you know, name a building, but to, to get two-thirds to give life people with life without an opportunity to go home, to get two-thirds to, change, to make it so that people charged with violent crimes, think about how that looks on paper. Somebody charged with murder has an opportunity to get a, get uh, out without paying bail. Now, we all know anybody can be charged with murder at any given time. I was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. I walked into a store and walked out, not to minimize my responsibility, but it was on tape that I didn't have a deadly weapon is what I'm saying. Right, but and you were charged with it. You were charged with it, sure. And under, under Prop 25, that charge would have held me in jail with no bail, simply right. for the charge. And a DA can charge you with whatever they want. Right. So. The yeah the the the, the difference is that ballot initiative comparing ballot initiative bills and is apples and oranges. Um, I think that there I've had a lot of conversations with folks at that organization. Their position is incremental change. Um, I'm not against incremental change. I'm saying that that doesn't apply. That's not how this particular instrument of policy change works. Got it, Rich. Thank you for sharing your perspective. Go ahead, Jay. So yeah, we're getting close to our time with you today, and. One thing I, we didn't get to t- touch on, which I think is important, is a, a little bit about question culture. Yes. What Tell is me, question culture? Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. <clears throat> so, um, look, policy can only change when culture has been changed, right? We tried to do, I think y'all remember when we were all initiated justice inside organizers years ago, we wanted to do a bill that capped sentences at 15 years before folks have an opportunity to go home. Mm-hmm. And some of the most progressive legislators we were talking to said, Hey, we don't have the, we don't, the, the public will not support us in that. Right. So we can't do that. 
So question culture is on the other side. We do culture change work. We make art um, that challenges uh, oppressive narratives and we do it in a way that's dope and accessible and feels just like any other movie or a TV show or hip hop song that you'd listen to on the radio. Um, except for we're trying to make the world more lit and, and less oppressive. And we connect every one of our major projects with an actual organizing campaign on the ground. What are some of your projects right now? I've seen some of your stuff on Instagram live and YouTube and, but what are some of your projects right now and how can people go and see those? Yeah. So we, I think the most recent thing that we put out, um, was the defund the sheriff album, um, which we were one of the, the labels who worked on it along with schools, not prisons. Um, we did that for justice LA, which is a coalition of organizations here in LA trying to build a future of LA without incarceration. And they came to us and they said, look, we're, we're trying to get money out of this huge sheriff's department budget and give it back to the community. And we think that an album will uh, legitimize and um, amplify that, that idea. So they called on Question Culture to, um, um, and as well as Schools Not Prisons to executive produce that album. So we got a bunch of dope artists, Vic Mensa, Lauren Yadaguay, Aloe Black, Madam Gandhi, as well as our Question Culture artists, Indigo Mateo, uh, 88. Um, and we put together a compilation album and we were able to, you know, make some, make some waves. We were in Pitchfork, we were in Rolling Stone, we were in Billboard. And we had people talking about defunding the sheriff of Los Angeles at, at the national scale. Rich, I haven't seen you on the keyboard or, or rapping lately. I mean, uh, maybe I'm looking in the wrong places, but when are you going to get back to doing stuff? There, there it goes. <laughs> He's got That's it right there. All right, all right. His desk is a hey, keyboard. <laughs> He's always calling him, man, can you come and do a song? Man? Yeah. You know, hey, I should have hit him up in advance. That's what's up. But, uh, I've been producing other people's music, y'all. I've been producing Indigo's music. Um, Indigo Mateo is an awesome abolitionist and, and uh, sexual harm survivor um, singer. Awesome. We're working on her second album right now. Uh, we released her first album shortly after I got out. Um, I've been producing a couple of different projects for 88 that uh, I can't. I can't say, but when they come out, y'all gonna know they out. Yeah. Um, how are really things? About those. How are things going on the uh, free eighty eight campaign? Eighty eight's doing great. He so yeah. he got the eleven seventy D. Um, he awesome. was recommended for resentencing by the Secretary of Corrections. He had his first court date uh, earlier this month. The judge looks favorable to resentencing, and he has another court date on November nineteenth, where she said she'll give a tentative ruling on if she'll resentence or not. I believe we have to go back one more time to find out by how much. Awesome. What 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 type of results have you have they been getting out of for eleven seventy D's in Los Angeles? It's been a mixed bag. It's been a mixed bag. Um, there's I've seen somebody go home twenty years early off eleven seventy D exceptional conduct, and I've seen people get sent right back and and the courts say we're not even we're not even going to look at this. Um, it's very quite literally case by case. Yeah. Well, uh, we, me and Jason got to um, hear Indigo uh, Mateo sing yeah. at the Institute of Impacted Leaders graduation. Yeah, the graduation for the Institute IJ event. She showed up and showed out. Pretty great. Pretty great. She's good people. Yeah, she's a beautiful voice and just such an authentic creative. I'm so excited for the second album so cool. to come. All right, man. Well, Rich, um, we appreciate you coming on today. Would you please um, plug um, Question Culture? 
all the things that you're doing on social media. How can people find you? How can they follow you? How can they subscribe? Uh, I'm sure you got them memorized top of your head. <laughs> yeah. Take I mean, off, brother. If you go to my Instagram, which is at Richie Reseda, just my name in my link tree is the links to question culture, success stories, initiate justice, the defund the sheriff album. Like it's all right there. Awesome. All right. All right. It's good seeing you. It's great seeing hey, y'all. Man, my guy. <laughs> and uh, who would have ever known? You gotta get another shirt though, because that's like this shirt. This one right here. Hey, look at this. Hey, bro. Hey, bro. This ain't PIA. This is Perry Ellis. I mean, it fits a little nicer than PIA, but when I seen you with a blue shirt, I thought we were invisible for a second. My guy. Hey, man. Sometimes, uh, uh, we were in there so long with them colors. They, they yeah. just appeal to you for so, in some way. Well, you know, we're here on a Thursday. I'm going to call it Throwback Thursday. <laughs> oh, there you go. Hey, Rich, uh, um, I love your logo, man. I always wondered what the upside down question mark was. And I see it on your logo right there. And uh like what you're doing with culture. Ultimately, uh, we will one day collaborate with, with Crop Organization. Our tagline is working together to restore lives. The Prison Post is sponsored by Crop Organization. And... Uh, you know, um, that's one of our ultimate goals, redefining the way people think about prison in America and, and, and to hear your story, our stories, uh, getting them out there week after week, new stories out there. Those, those in the um, restorative justice movement and, and, and criminal justice reform movement and formerly incarcerated people and saying like, wow, here's another one. Oh, here's another one. Oh, here's another one. And, and because I think that sometimes they think that people like us are an anomaly and it ain't true. Yeah. I remember I was, I'll leave y'all with this. Um, in the last prison I was, after I left y'all and I was in Jamestown, uh, I was in the firehouse. I was fighting fire and I would have to go in and out of the actual prison all the time and get stripped out. And there was just one cop who would do it. And we built a little bit of a relationship. And he said, hey man, how come all them guys in there pointing towards the yard away from the firehouse where I came from? How come all those guys in there aren't like you? I said, they are, sir. They absolutely are. And they just need the opportunity to be that. I got this opportunity to be in this firehouse. What opportunity do they need for you to trust them? That part. See a man as it could be. Beautiful. And he will be. Hey, love you, bro. Love Thanks, you Rich. Thanks, Rich. Talk out soon. See you. All, all right, right, brother. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice. So please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.